There we go. All right. Daniel chapter one. We're going to begin in verse eight this morning. Um, Daniel begins, says, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. And as we talked about that, and we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, Daniel's not concerned necessarily with eating the meat or drinking the wine. Wine is nowhere prohibited. It's not something that he would have to not drink necessarily. Now, he may have concerns about it being offered to idols and those things, but we took some time and we looked at what was happening here, and, and we saw that Daniel's more concerned about this provision and all of those things, because everything here, the changing of their names, the provision of meat, all of these things are designed to assimilate them into this culture, to make it comfortable for them to, to displace faith and replace trust in something temporal. And Daniel doesn't want to defile himself in idolatry. And that's what he's getting at. And that's, that's the request that he's making. So this morning, as we, we, we pick up here, and I want to look at this second portion. He purposed in his heart, and we talked about that, that it took some conviction and it took some things ahead of time. He had this prepared. There was a, something upon which that purpose was established before he made this request. And so I want to look at this a little bit because we live in a, in a world that is increasingly antagonistic to Christianity, which is always going to be a true statement. But in our country today, uh, and not just our country, but, but our, our little community more and more is becoming antagonistic. And so we as believers are going to live in a world like Daniel in enemy territory. I mean, here we are strangers in a strange land. We're pilgrims here. This is not where our ultimate allegiance lies. And we're going to discuss that just briefly. But we also know that because we just finished studying through Romans, and one of the things we spent some significant time looking at are the authorities that God establishes over us and our responsibility in regard to those authorities as we submit to Christ in those, in that obedience. And so here Daniel is in a similar circumstance. He's in enemy territory. That's where he's living. And as we looked at this, right, what did God tell them by, with, through the prophet Jeremiah? He said, while you're here for this 70-year period, build houses, plant gardens, get married, have kids, and seek the peace of the town, the place that you're living. He told them to submit to the authorities that were there and to seek their best. He said, pray for their peace, because in that you have peace. And we see that God is moving in all of this. He's established these authorities for this 70-year period to be Babylonian authorities. And so Daniel makes an appeal to authority. He says, uh, I don't want to defile myself. He, Daniel, and his three buddies, right? We have Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And we're going to do our best to call them by their Hebrew names, right? Because Why? Because we all know Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. But those names were given as a means to try and assimilate them. 
And their names, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, right? They're reminders of God's faithfulness. So we're going to try to use those. But Daniel appeals to the authorities that God has established over him. He and his buddies uh, ask that they, they want to eat, as it says here in the King James, pulse, which just means vegetables. They want to be on a vegetable diet. Right? We're, here it is. The king provides everything necessary, all the good stuff, but we want our trust to be wholly and completely in the Lord, so give us vegetables. Even in, even in the request that is made, if he was concerned about idolatry and eating meat sacrificed to idols and those things, his request could have been different. The vegetables could as easily in this culture have been sacrificed to idols as well. I mean, we have that going all the way back to Cain. This is not new territory. If the enemy is going to take the authentic, the real, what God has asked for, and he's going to twist it and put it on its head, it's no stretch of the imagination. And not only that, but from extra-biblical sources, we know that the Chaldeans, Babylonians, that's part of their worship. He's not concerned about eating the meat sacrificed to idols. He's concerned about his faith being misplaced, being drawn away. So he asked, let us eat vegetables. <clears throat> let us eat vegetables. Now, I want to make three observations about Daniel's appeal, and just very quickly. Because we're going to live, we're going to live here in this world, and we are living here in this world. There's no if about it, right? We need, we're going to encounter authorities. There's going to be times and places and things that we need to make an appeal about. Number one, it was respectful. Daniel is not making a request here uh, snidely, or he's being respectful in his request. We see that in verse 8. There's no indication anywhere that he's done anything uh, that would cause anyone to take, take reservation with his attitude. He expresses his conviction. And I think it's fully understood that this is not the conviction of those people who are there. It's not necessarily the conviction of those that he is making the appeal to. So he expresses his conviction. And we need to understand that conviction. Third, it's considered, he considers the reputation of those that are in authority. And I'm drawing that. Let's read some more here. Um, let's begin in verse 9. Now God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. And the prince of the eunuchs said unto Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who has appointed you meat and your drink. For why should you see your faces worse, liking than the children which are your sort? Then shall you make me endanger my head to the king. So here's, this is his concern, right? The king is giving you everything. He's giving you the good stuff. You're asking for vegetables. This is my head on My job is to get you into such a state in this three years to educate you, to make sure you're fattened up and looking good so that when you stand before the king, it's appealing. I mean, one of the criteria of the kids that are brought from Jerusalem to Babylon is that they're handsome, that they're, they're, they look good. And he says, what I, what I can allow to happen is that when you stand before the king because of the diet that you've had, you look worse than everyone else. That's on me. And so he's worried about this. He expresses concern about this. And that's that, so Daniel's first appeal here is denied. 
The prince of the eunuch says, no. We're not going to do this because that's too risky for me. So what does Daniel do? Then Daniel said to Melzar, he goes to somebody else. He makes a second appeal of the same thing to a different authority. The guy who has direct supervision over him, whom the prince of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He asked for the same thing. And this is what he says. Prove thy servants. Test it. I beseech thee 10 days. Give us 10 days and let them give us pulse vegetables to eat and water to drink. Give us 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, verse 13, then let our countenances be looked upon before thee and the countenance of the children that eat of the portion of the king's meat. And as thou seest, deal with thy servants. So he consented to them in this matter and proved them 10 days. They considered his reputation. They considered his risk in granting that they're asking for special treatment. And so their appeal considers his risk, if I could phrase it that way. And we live in a world that's going to be hostile toward us as we put our faith in Christ, as we, like, Dave, like Daniel, purpose to serve him and him first and alone. And we're going to submit, they're going to reap the benefit of that. And we talked about this as we studied through Romans. They will reap the benefit of that because good Christians make good citizens. but we also know where our ultimate allegiance lies. So I want to balance truth here. There's a balance of submission to the ordained authority, to those that God has established over us, and in Daniel's case, these Babylonian captors, and submission to the ultimate authority who we all know is God, right? And that's the proviso we, have, we follow, we submit to them as far as, and we kind of addressed that when we went through Romans, and I don't want to, completely recover all of that, but we're going to look at some of it. And a couple of things to consider. Number one, it may not be God's will to allow that request. Here's Daniel, and he's making the appeal to the authorities that God has established over him. And I'm relatively convinced, we don't know, because it didn't, didn't shake out this way, but I'm relatively convinced that had They've been told no the second time they would have submitted to the authorities that God had established for them. Realizing that this is what God has purposed, therefore, God did not allow this request. And we will have to be careful to guard our hearts against idolatry. And that's specific, right? I have to guard my heart against idolatry. I'm asking for provision to help me in that same task. He's doing that no matter what. But his request is asking for provision to help that make that easier. And if he gets told no, they're not asking him to sin. That's not, his, that's not the conviction as we looked at a couple of weeks ago. That's not what he's worried about. He's worried about his heart. So he's going to have the harder task. Right, because here's everything good. Here's everything. Boy, this sure seems easy. This, you remember when the nation of Israel comes into the promised land and God says, listen, when you drink of the water from the wells that you didn't dig, when you live in the houses that you didn't build, when you harvest the crops that you didn't plant, when you do all of those things, be careful to not forget me who provided all of it. 
This is Daniel's temptation. This is what he's concerned about. So it may not be God's will to allow the request. And we have to, we have to weigh that. Number one, is this something that is causing sin? Is this disobedience to the Lord to submit to this or not? We have to weigh that. And in some respects, there's going to be a personal evaluation there. And also, we have to consider that to obey God, we may need to continue in submission to the ordained authority. We have to remain in submission to the ordained authority. I don't know if you noticed, but here's Daniel. He says, listen, prove us, test us. He put a fleece out just like Gideon. He said, listen, give us this 10 days. And if it looks good, if things are working out, then we'll, we'll keep going this way. And if not, then we'll know. He's trusting that God is in the midst of this. He's trusting that God is, with just vegetables and water, going to give them everything that is necessary to make them stand out, to make them at least equal with the rest of the people who have been brought into captivity, who are being put through the same training program. And that's part of the reason I say that if, if they were told no, or if God says no, by not answering this fleece, so to speak, they would have submitted and they would have eaten what they were given. Okay, so, so if we're going to balance truth, we have to balance submission of the, to the ordained authority that God has established with submission to our ultimate authority. And we have to realize that it may not be God's will, that, that he sovereignly may be using them to tell us no, and that we have to submit to that authority because it is our obedience to God. Whosoever, therefore, resists the authority, resists them as the oracle of God. We read that in Romans, okay? Now, just to lay a foundation here, right? God is, turn with me to Romans 13. God is the ultimate authority. There's no question about that. There's no wavering or equivocation on that point. We don't, And if, if they would have said, and we see this in Daniel, if they would have said, this is what you have to worship, they're not going to do it. We see that, and that's why Daniel went to the lion's den. That's why Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah went into the fiery furnace. Because there was sin, they were commanded to engage in sin. They, they were not going to do that. Okay? God is the ultimate authority. It says in Romans 13, 1, let every soul be subject to the higher power, those that God has ordained. For there's no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. He has established them. So they're the ordained authority. They're the one that God has put there. If we jump over to Romans chapter 14, verses 11 through 12, for it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. He is the ultimate authority. Those that he has ordained to be authorities are answerable to him, and you and I are answerable to him. And part of what we're answerable to him are, is our obedience to those that he has established over us. And that's not a fun or a pleasant topic to preach all the time. I mean, when, when everybody likes the authorities that God has ordained, when it's going the way we think it ought to go, it's easy, isn't it? We're, we're on board. But when it goes the other way, that's when we have, that's when we are forced to think about these things. We should be thinking about these things all the time. Because here's what happens. 
we fall into the same thing that Daniel is trying to preserve himself against. Here's everything going the way we think it ought to go. We like who's, who's in the Oval Office, we like whatever it may be. And so we're on this path and we're good. And what happens or the temptation for us is to say, listen, I'm agreeable with this. It seems to be going the way that I want it to go. And we check out, so to speak. We're eating the king's meat, drinking the king's wine, everything, all the good stuff is happening. And we're unwilling to say, wait a minute, what does God's word say? Who is ultimately the authority? Is that thing, that policy, that thing that they're looking at, is that good or bad? Is it right or wrong? Is that consistent with who God is and what he's revealed of himself? Or is it inconsistent? We need to be thinking about this all the time. It doesn't matter if we agree or disagree. This should be our normative state. Not that we run around with a little chip on our shoulder. You know, I mean, we, but we're going to prove all things, 1 Thessalonians 5.21, and hold fast that which is good. We're going to balance this truth, this authority, knowing that God is ultimately the one that we're answerable to, the one that our authorities are answerable to. And we want to walk in total obedience to God, even if that means submission to these authorities here. He has ordained the authorities. We submit to them, uh, provided that they are in step with God's character and his words. And I tell you that as I type that, because I remember we were studying through Romans, and I'm like, I, I don't like that caveat. It, it's true. It is true. Because, and, and we see it in Daniel. More than once, we see it in Daniel. It's out of step with God, and so therefore we cannot and we will not. The reason I don't like that caveat is because we're quick to jump on that. Right? We, hey, the guys that we don't like, are, they're, they're running things now, and so... Well, you know, we throw that caveat out there all the time, and maybe we need to more, but ultimately I'm answerable to the Lord. That's where I need to be looking at things. That's the standard that I need to be comparing what's being proposed and all of those things to. We live in a country that is easy, right? I mean, we're, it's just, it's easy. I mean, we, we have just this little insight, this little look into what's going on in Afghanistan, for example, right? As we're pulling out and we, we hear the things that are happening, the atrocities that are going on there from people who are there on the ground. We have it easy. Our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan and those regions, this is what they live. This is, they look at this all the time. Sometimes that ease puts us into lethargy we wander around a little too easily okay uh romans chapter 13 let's read verses 2 through 7 whosoever therefore resists the power resists the ordinance of god and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation pretty strong terms here okay, now we, we we understand we we just reading it we spent a lot of time unpacking we spent weeks in romans 13 so if you need a refresher, get the refresher. Verse three, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is a minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, 
for he bears not the sword in vain, but he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Okay, obviously, there's the perfect, this is the way it should be description. We understand that. This is what God intended. Whatever man touches, he corrupts. And that started all the way back when it was very good at creation, and man was involved in sin and with sin, death. Romans chapter 5. Okay, so, so this is a perfect description of what government should be like. We don't live in a world that has perfect governments. So therefore, there's going to be times when we submit to the ultimate authority of God, accepting the consequence that may happen to us, just like Daniel and his three buddies, because we're going to trust the Lord. And as you read through and as you look at those things, as you see throughout history, the witness of those martyrs, those who took a stand and said, we're going to stand for Christ and his plan and purpose and will, despite whatever's going on, no matter what's going to happen to me, we see that stand taken and we see the explosion of the gospel. We see that witness that if those persons would give their life for something, I should really probably look into that. We have those kinds of things. That's what's happening in Afghanistan. If you talk to people who are there, missionaries who, who were, are, were or are there, the church is exploding. Okay, so this is a statement of the perfect government and our perfect interaction with a perfect government. It's not perfect. But our ultimate authority is to God. Where we can submit to them, we do so. Or we can't, we stand. And we stand upon God and his word, completely and wholly. And I call that standing in faith. Some people call it standing alone. Dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone. I mean, we've heard this, maybe you've heard this song, but you haven't. But there it is, right? I call it standing in faith. Because here's Daniel, and we forget about his three friends. They're right there with him. They made the same stand. They were the first ones in the fire. Daniel standing in faith. And he would have done it even if he was alone. We may have to consciously stand in faith to trust and obey God and live in obedience to his word and against the authorities that he has ordained. We may have to. And I'm saying that directly to you and I. We may have to. Unfortunately, that's the world that we live in. We may have to. And we need to make sure that we are prepared. Uh, grab one of the, the newsletters for this month. It's part of what I'm talking about. Are we ready? Daniel purposed in his heart, but he was purposing based on what was already there. We're going to talk about that this morning just a little bit. What is already here? What are we going to stand upon if we have to do this? We have several, and, and I've got some examples here. I want to look at some examples this morning. Okay, let's turn to Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6, we have the account of Noah's flood. Okay? And, and, I, and I go to this verse, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, says, And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is a pretty thorough and complete statement of absolute sinfulness. That's where they were abiding. 
That's what they were about. What was the abundance of the heart? Sin. That was the, their only meditation, their intent. And what came out? Sinfulness. We jump down to verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. And as we look in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, it says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So here he is in this perverse generation, this crooked generation that's continually engaged in sin. That's what they're thinking about. That's what they're pondering. It's what they're meditating on day and night, only evil continually. And here's Noah. He's upright in his generation. He's standing against that. Not only that, he's preaching righteousness. In other words, Noah is saying, what you're doing is sin. This is righteousness. This is what God expects of us. This is what he's demanded from you and me. Noah was probably not a very popular person. But he stood in faith. And he did, he preached that anyway. David's another example. Turn with me to 1 Samuel. Noah stood against a generation of people. Daniel stood against, excuse me, David stood against friends, people that should have in many respects been giving him good advice. 1 Samuel. And I'll just tell you this, this happened in David's life, life, this almost identical circumstance twice. And both times, David was the only one that stood against what was being, hey, take advantage of this. He stood against it, in the, in, in, as we'll see. 1 Samuel 26, let's begin here in verse 8. Uh, then said Abishai to David, God has delivered thine enemy into thine hand this day. And I'll just pause there, right? Just a little background. If you want to get, here they are. Saul is on his way to Gibeah. And, and David has the opportunity. Here, here he is. David could easily kill Saul. A circumstance, you can read it. There's, there's two ways that it happens. Like I said, it happens twice. But you can read just the first few verses of this chapter. You'll get, you'll get the context of what's going on. Um, basically, they snuck into the camp. That's what happened. <laughs> and Abishai says, listen, this is it. David, God has delivered him into your hands. Go ahead and kill him. And David said in verse 9 to Abishai, destroy him not, for who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Which is an interesting thing, right? I mean, he, the, the throne has been removed from Saul at this point. All of these things are true. David, is he's going to be the next king. And he says, this is the authority that God has established right now. Who should, we're not going to kill him. I mean, everybody would have, this, not only that, but it's common. It's common practice. When you, when you take, thro take the throne, you, you kill everyone who may have another claim against the throne. You remember that they were concerned because here's David and he does take the throne. And they're worried about all of Saul's descendants. And they're worried about Jonathan's descendants. You have Mephibosheth, who was lame. And Daniel had made the covenant with Jonathan. He's like, nope, he's going to be fine. We, in fact, not only that, he gets to live here with me. We're going to take care of him. Because it's not uncommon. 
in this day and age, in these monarchies, this is what's happening. So for David to have stretched out his sword and to have taken Saul's life is, wouldn't have been a controversial thing. But here is David, a man after God's own heart, and he looks at it differently. And he says, no, I'm going to stand in faith. I'm going to consciously trust and obey God and live in accordance with his word. even though everyone's saying I should do something different. David said, furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall smite him. Not only is David walking in faith, he's walking in faith for the timing of his ascension to the throne. For his day shall come to die, or he shall descend into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch forth mine hand against the Lord's anointed. But I pray thee, take now the spear that is at his bolster and the cruise of water and let us go. And if you read on, you'll find, hey, when everybody wakes up, David's like, listen, I could have, but I didn't. And the other time they find Saul in the cave and they cut the tassels off his cloak and I could have, but I didn't. He stands alone. He stands in faith and trust of what God is doing, even though he could have done something different. We see John and Peter in Acts chapter 4, right? In Acts chapter 3, turn to Acts chapter 4. We're going to we'll hit a few verses here. But in Acts chapter 3, they come to the beautiful gate, remember? And there's the lame man. He's been lame since birth. And he's asking, he's there begging. Peter says, hey, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he grabs him and says immediately his ankle bones and everything receives strength. And he goes into the temple walking and leaping and praising God. And what happens? These two apostles are now on trial for the Olympic man. The authorities that are there say, listen, you cannot preach Christ. They put him in jail, and they, they realize we can't, we can't kill them like we want to because everybody's excited about this miracle that happened. And you can read about this in, in chapter 4. But So what do they do? They just command them. You cannot preach in the name of Jesus Christ anymore. These are the religious leaders. These are the, the Pharisees, the priests. These are the guys who should have been paying attention. These are the guys who also conspired to have Jesus put on the cross. And they tell them, you can't preach in Jesus' name. pick up in Acts chapter 4, verse 16. So here's this council together. They conferred among themselves, saying, what shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle has been done by them is manifested to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But that is spread no further among the people. Let us straightly threaten them that they may speak henceforth no more, that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them and they commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, in verse 19, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than God, judge you. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Not only that, remember, they've been commissioned by Jesus himself to go and share the things that they've seen and heard, to make disciples of every nation. 
They stood in faith. And here they are, knowing that these are the same people who put Jesus to death, who conspired to bring him before Pilate, who conspired to make sure that he didn't leave the cross. And they said, no, we're going to stand here. You decide whether or not it's right for us to obey God or not. We already know. And they stood in faith. It was in opposition to the authorities that God had established there. But it didn't matter. If you go through the book of Hebrews and get to chapter 11, that hall of faith, and we read about Cain and Abel, and we read, well, not Cain and Abel, kind of about Cain and Abel, but we read about Abel, we read about Noah, we read about many others who operated in faith. And as you get to the end of that chapter, it talks about those who received their their dead raised again, so on and so forth. The, the earth was not worthy of them. And then you get into chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. For you and I, this, this is the really the culmination of Hebrews chapter 11. And we took time. We studied through Hebrews 11. I don't know. seems like it wasn't that long ago, but it was, I think, like two years ago. We studied through chapter 11, and we looked at those stories. We looked at the instances there. We saw the faithfulness of those people, and we saw the faithfulness of God to those people. And as we get into chapter 12, this is wherefore, because of all of this, because of the witness that we have, because of the faithfulness of God proven over and over, wherefore, see, and you are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight in the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. And here's Daniel and Hananiah, and Mishael, and Azariah, and they're running the race that's put before them. They purposed in their hearts based upon what they've already been trained in, what they already know. Here is the word of God. Here is the faithfulness to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Here is them looking with expectation and hope to this world, to this city, that it doesn't have its origins here. Therefore, we're going to stand, knowing that God is indeed faithful. If you remember all the way, what, three weeks ago, we looked at that historical context, and we spent most of our time in Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah is the prophet that is proclaiming to Judah about their exile that's about to come. And here's this man of God, and here's what he's been telling us, and So here we are. We're in captivity, just like Jeremiah said. We're here under the authority, under their corrective hand of God, as he's ordained them to be our authorities. So what are we going to do? We don't want to defile ourselves. We want to make sure that our heart is firmly and completely established upon God. And so we're going to ask. We're going to ask for some vegetables. And no matter what happens, no matter what the response to that request may be, we're going to stand in faith. We're going to consciously trust and obey God and live in obedience to his word. And this is a lifelong pursuit. This is foundational to our understanding of the book of Daniel going forward. Because everything that Daniel does, whether he's interpreting the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar, whether he's going into the upper room to pray, knowing that he full well may be killed for it. 
he says, I'm going to consciously act in faith, in trust, in obedience to God. When we look at the world around us and we see those things, and we look at the possibility of having to stand in faith, is that the abundance? Is that what's there? Is that what's already there? So I want to look at, as we close this morning, three things. These three things, I don't know why three before and three now. It doesn't really matter. There's more. It could be less. But three things, three keys to standing in faith. First off, our position, and as it would say in Daniel, our, the purpose of our heart must be established in truth. And so we have two things to discuss here. First, we have the big picture. What is the abundance of my heart? What is here so that when I'm faced with the inevitability of having to stand in faith and walk in obedience to God as opposed to the authority or submitting myself to the authority as obedience to God, what's going to come out? What's already pre-programmed, if I can phrase it that way? What's here? The bigger picture. And secondly, whatever appeal that I'm about to make, that conviction that I'm going to express, is it established in truth? Or is it just my opinion? John chapter 17, verse 17. Here is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. In my opinion, and I know I've shared this before, but this chapter was pivotal in my coming to faith. Here is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, agonizing over going to the cross. And he prays for me, prays for you, those who would come to faith. And as he prays to the Father, this is what he says in John chapter 17, verse 17. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. A couple weeks ago, I made the statement that if we purpose in our heart to stand on something that is anything less than truth, it's not going to stand. Here, Jesus is praying for you and I, for all those believers, and he's, as he's praying about the fellowship of the body of Christ, as he's praying about unity with he and the Father and believer. I mean, he says, sanctify them, set them apart with thy truth. Your word is truth. This is truth. Not what scientists say, not what, not what our teachers at school say. This is truth, unquestionable, unwavering, unchanging. This is the foundation. And here Jesus prays for you and I that we would be established in that truth. And I'm telling you this morning that we are inevitably going to have to stand on faith. We need to establish ourselves in truth now. Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17. These should be familiar. These are memory verses in the past, right? All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Here's the word of God. Thy word is truth. 
This is what God has given you and I to establish us in that truth, to pre-program our heart, to stand in faith. And I know that it's something that we talk about a lot and it's probably cliche at this point, but it is nonetheless true. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7 for just a moment. Matthew chapter 7. Here we find this passage, and Jesus himself is speaking. This is kind of what we've based this whole point upon, that the position, the purpose of our heart must be established in truth. That I have to, like Daniel, purpose before it ever happens, where I'm going to stand, who I'm going to, who ultimately my allegiance is to. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 through 27. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a man wise, which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. The foundation was sure. The purpose had already been done. The, the work, so to speak, to engraft the word of God into us, to fill the abundance of our heart with truth, was done. Foundation was laid. And when everything went sideways, when the rains came and the floods came, it stood. And we do that. We do that today. We do it now. We can't do it later. There aren't enough sandbags. There isn't enough time. There, none of that It happens now. We purpose to do it now. He, he goes on and he says, And everyone that hears the sayings of mine and does them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. He had the opportunity to have done the work, to have dug down and to establish himself, to fill the change the abundance of his heart, and he didn't take it. And when everything goes sideways and the sand begins to, to shift, the house is gone. There's nothing firm to stand upon. Our position, the purpose of our heart has to be established in truth. And I would add to that point that it has to be established beforehand. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. It has to be established beforehand. Why do we memorize scripture together? Why do we hold one another accountable to do that? It's changing the abundance of our heart. It is building foundation. Why do we endeavor to build fellowship through prayer and all these things? Because it's foundational. We're helping one another dig down and build upon the rock. So that when it goes sideways, I don't see you, who, I'm, who I love dearly, washed away. Number two, like Daniel, we must commit to the truth, even if it means hardship for us. In other words, we accept the consequence. If we stand against the authority, if we stand in faith in our, in our obedience to God, who is the ultimate authority, inevitably, there's going to be a consequence to us. 
Now, here, here's the thing. We can't expect the consequence to be fair, just, right, or noble. It will not be any of those things. But they're very likely to be consequence. And we have to, no matter what the consequence may be, submit, commit to stand in faith. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Second Timothy chapter 1. Let's look at verses 7 and 9, 7 through 9. This is Paul, and he's writing to Timothy, his own son in the faith. He says, so this man that he has led to the Lord, that he has discipled, that he has helped dig down and build upon that rock. His concern for Timothy. And he says in verses 7 through 9, he says, desiring to be teachers. Okay, There are those who have swerved, have turned aside, uh, vain jangling. I mean, they're, they're just spouting off, in other words. They desire to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say, nor whereof they affirm. They, they don't know what they're saying. The problem is this, and this is the problem today, as much as it was then, and maybe more so, that's what people want to hear. Those, those people with the itching ears, and they heap to themselves teachers that tell them only what they want to hear. Paul was writing to the same guy about the same thing, right? This is part of it. He says, they desire to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm, verse 8. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers, murderers of mothers, for manslayers. And he was on. The law is not made for the righteous man. We know that the law is good, that what God has said is good. We know that it's right. We know that it's accurate. We know that it is honoring to him, no matter what. No matter what the world says about it, no matter what consequence we may have as a result of standing upon it, we know that it is good. We say things all the time, and, and we don't mean to. I wish this would have happened, or I wish that wouldn't have happened. And, and while there isn't anything inherently wrong in that, it lacks the acknowledgement of God's sovereignty. Whatever God has said is good. And it doesn't matter if I think about it or say something different. I wish that wouldn't have happened. I wish that it's good. And we stand upon that. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. It says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. He's talking about prayer. And he said, let, let supplications, intercessions, giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings. Pray for those who are the ordained authorities. For all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. And then he says, this is good and acceptable inside of, our, inside of God, our Savior. We should be praying for those in authority. 
who would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. We're going to stand on faith. We're going to pray for those who are in authority over us that we might lead a peaceable life, knowing that it may not always be that way. That God in his sovereignty may have said, listen, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to allow that request. That appeal that you've made, I'm going to deny it because I need to grow in you something different. Whatever the circumstance may be, whatever the reason may be, doesn't change where we reside, where we stand. Let's jump over to Galatians chapter 1 for just a moment. just by way of encouragement to you and I who are looking and faced with the reality of perhaps having to stand upon faith, knowing that there are consequences, knowing that that even may require of me my life. As Paul introduces and, and sort of in, opens the book of Galatians, he says this, speaking of Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. It doesn't matter what happens, right? Because these ungodly authorities, these, these over here, put us to death, doesn't mean that we've somehow lost out on heaven, right? That's not true. We are secure in our faith in Christ. He gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. Galatians 6.14 says, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. It's an interesting thing for us to think about because here we are talking about standing in faith, even, even potentially to the, having, to, to the giving of our lives for that faith, walking in obedience to God. And I realize that it's sort of heavy. But Paul says, listen, I'm not going to glory in anything. I'm not going to glory in this life. I'm not going to glory in the, the accolades and all of those things. I mean, Paul was a Jew of Jews, right? I mean, he was the guy. He was from the right tribes. He went to the right schools. He was, but he says, I count everything as dung for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. He says, I'm not going to glory in anything save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. By whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. You remember in Romans chapter six, as we're going through there, and he's talking about, listen, reckon yourselves dead unto sin. In the same respect, we are crucified in the world. We are dead to the world. We have been freed from it. We have the full honor and privilege of serving the Lord Jesus Christ completely and wholly, without any reservation, without anything holding us back. And that's part of what Paul is talking about here. The world is crucified unto me. It means nothing. It holds no sway. It doesn't pull me this way or that way. Now, we live in a world that concerns us. We as parents have all kinds of concerns for our children. And what they're going to have to go through that I never had to think about going through. 
all the more critical for us to help them in this, these things, to stand in faith. But he says, the world doesn't hold me. I am crucified to the world and the world to me. Reckon yourselves dead. Stand in faith. There is no guarantee, we're not to point number three yet, but they're just continuing on that same theme, right? There's no guarantee of ease in this life. It just is the truth. There's no guarantee. Just because I put my faith in Jesus Christ doesn't mean pie in the sky and no flat tires. It just, you know, doesn't mean that when you work on your car, you're not going to break it more. It just isn't true. I mean, those things are trivial, I understand, but we understand the parallel. Jesus said in John 16, verse 33, if we we want to know what to expect as a believer, these things I've spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. Right. So just pause there. First of all, we can expect peace in Jesus Christ. And you can look at the context here, all of these things. He's talking about uh, going to the Father. He's talking about sending the Holy Spirit, who's going to reprove us in truth and righteousness and of judgment. All of, That's this chapter. That's where we're at. But he says, I've given you these things. I've spoken this to you so that in me you might have peace, comfort, an understanding of what is coming. In this world, you shall have tribulation or hardship or persecution. All are applicable, but be of good cheer. Don't be down. I have overcome the world. Ease isn't guaranteed. But the value of serving the Lord is. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. We can expect to have hardship. We can expect to have trouble. We can expect good things as well. Okay? We're going to get to that next week. Because we have this miracle where God delivers the righteous. We talked about that in the introduction to this book. That's next week. I'm going to leave it heavy this week. We're going to get there. The value of serving the Lord is guaranteed in this life. It does bear dividends. It bears fruit in you and in me. It witnesses to the world around us. There is 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Right? We may be standing in faith. We may be the only one standing in faith. But it doesn't mean that we're alone. He has overcome the world. And when we stand in faith, when we stand upon the truth of God, and we wholeheartedly, no matter what's coming our way, we are standing in the right. The value of serving the Lord is there. Turns me one, one chapter back. John chapter, 1 John 5, 4. For whosoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is a victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. This is a victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Our trust, our obedience, our walking with Christ, no matter what. 
Third, standing alone is not reactionary, but it's based on our love of the Lord. It's not reactionary. First of all, there should be no surprise that we're going to have trouble. But it, and it's also not something that I'm doing in response to the hardship that is around me. I'm not digging down feverishly trying to get to the rock because something has happened. I dug down and did that because of my love for the Lord. Because he gave everything that I might be made his righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. says, for the love of Christ constrains us. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Standing in faith is a reaction, if it is a reaction, to what Christ has done. To the love of God reciprocated back. As we look at this chapter in 2 Corinthians, this, I mean, we're told to be, there were new creations in him. We're told to be ambassadors. We're told that in, in the last verse that he was made sin so that we could be made his righteousness. Right? We are constrained by his love. That constraint, I mean, it simply means that there is no other option, if I can just say it that way. In Christ, I have no other option. I don't want any other option than to serve him. And if I want other things, I need to examine my heart. I need to see what, what the abundance really is. Let that be it. Let that be a clue for us. It constrains us because we thus judge if one died for all, then we're all dead. Not just that guy over there, but me. And that he died for all, that they which should live, not henceforth live unto themselves. Right? We, we already tried that. We already lived for ourselves. Beforehand, I think it says in Ephesians, I'm not sure which chapter, I apologize. That there was plenty of time to live like that, as the Gentiles lived, as the pagans lived, before we came to Christ. And he says, you have not so learned Christ. We henceforth live unto him who died and rose again, who delivered us from death to life, from darkness to light, called us into his kingdom that we might be his witnesses, his ambassadors to a world around us. Turn with me to John chapter 14. <clears throat> John chapter 14, let's read verse 15.
Jesus would simply say, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. In verse 21, he says, he that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And he that loves me shall be loved by my father and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. We're not talking about earning or meriting favor with God. We're talking about a reciprocation. That he who would leave the glory of everything in heaven, take on flesh for the purpose of dying so that we might be redeemed. And the Bible tells us in Romans 5 eight that that's how he showed us his love. God commendeth his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you, if you love him, we will reciprocate in obedience. We will reciprocate in trust, in faith. Revelation 4.11, if I can just use this as a means to close up. Speaking about the authority of God, about him being the ultimate authority. Speaking about the purpose that we have in Christ, even outside of Christ, but in Christ in particular. It says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Our chief end, the, the most, imp most important thing, I'll just say it that way, is to know and to serve God and to rejoice in fellowship with him forever. In this life, we know we may have trouble. In this life, we know we may have hardship. But we also know that in this world, in this life, we have victory. That we've been delivered. That we have a sure foundation of truth to stand upon. And that because there is trouble, because there are those who stand against God, his will, his plan and purpose. We're going to have to stand with him. And sometimes that puts us in opposition to the world around us. Will we stand? What's the abundance of our heart? What foundation do we hold now before it happens? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in your name. God, I rejoice that we can do so freely and without fear of persecution for now. And God, we pray for those who are in leadership, who, who are the authorities uh, that you have ordained over us. Lord, we pray that you would give them wisdom and grant them understanding. God, we pray for their salvation. And Lord, we pray that as we we lift them before you that we might reap the, the benefit of peace. Knowing full well, Lord, that you have told us that we'll have hardship, that we'll have tribulation, that we're going to have to stand in obedience to you no matter what. And God, I pray for everyone here that we might have your grace. 
that we might do so, that we might stand in faith acceptably. God, would you open our hearts and minds and give us an urgency to build upon the foundation, to dig down, to, to put in the work, so to speak, that we have an abundance of truth. And then when everything goes sideways, Lord, we stand. And I pray that you would encourage us with these truths, so that we, you would encourage us toward holy living. And Lord, give us an expectation of hope as we look next week at the hope of your deliverance of the righteous. We praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.